podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. I'm Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. On Perpetual Chess, I have weekly conversations with the chess world's best players, promoters, and educators about their lives, careers, current projects, and best practices. Perpetual Chess is brought to you through the generosity of its Patreon and PayPal supporters. For more information, go to perpetualchesspod.com. Hey everyone, welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We have a great return guest back from the early days of Perpetual Chess, a uh, young-ish chess talent, teacher, writer, coach, uh, international master, player, of course, uh, Kostya Kovrutsky. Kostya, thanks for joining us again. Hey Ben, thank you for having me again as well. So for those of you listening who haven't been listening to Perpetual Chess since the the days of way back in uh, January of 2017, Kostya graciously was our uh, fourth guest, and he basically told his whole life story chess-wise up to that point. So if you're newer to the show or you didn't catch that episode, you can go back and get all of Kostya's background. You also may know him. Uh, he's quite active on social media, and he does lectures for Chess University. He has a Patreon page. He makes YouTube videos. He writes for U.S. Chess, and he can even be found actually teaching in uh, chess clubs and stuff like that. So you may already know him, but if you don't, you can get a lot of background. But I want to pick things up and find out what's new. So so how's life, Kostya? Uh, life is pretty good. I'm currently at home in Mountain View, kind of getting back into uh, the the school year starting up. So there's a lot of a lot of coaching going on here. Yeah, I'm there with you. And we thought that now would be a good time to get you back on because you came back from one of those summer chess trips that make me so jealous. So uh, you and you've been covering this on your YouTube channel. You've been doing game reports and talking about it a bit online. But why don't you let our listeners know first, uh, if you could just give a rundown of all the places that you went this summer. Yeah, absolutely. I, so I went on a huge trip. It started uh, in Hungary for uh GM Norm Round Robin tournament, and that was back uh, in the around the middle of June, like June twelfth. Um, and then the trip lasted all the way until just recently, the first week of August, where it finished uh, with an I am Norm Round Robin in Montreal, Canada. And that was kind of my final event. Uh, so in between these two tournaments, uh, I also played an open tournament in uh, Romania, Fisca Open. Here I met up with uh, Eric Rosen, and then from there we went to Barcelona, and from Barcelona we went to uh, Benaski, Spain, and played the Benaski Open. Uh, that was a really strong event. From there I then traveled to Chile to coach at the Pan American Youth Festival where I was working with the, the U.S. team. Um, this was probably the the event I was most looking forward to because I, I wanted to, to coach at one of these events for a while. But yeah, that basically takes us to late July. And then I, I took a flight to Montreal to play this uh, I am Norm Round Robin, where I was uh, one of the IMs. Nice. So three continents and four or five chess tournaments, uh, plus some coaching thrown in. Sounds like a, a fun summer to me. And did you get some some downtime in between? Did you get to do some actual touristing? Yeah, we had uh, a couple of days that were mostly used for, for travel. 
Um, but I would say the highlight would be uh, just quickly going through France uh, in between the tournaments in Spain and Chile uh, as I was flying from Paris. So I was able to, to travel to uh, Bordeaux and see that place for the first time. And then we went to this very small French town on the seaside called uh, Cap Ferret, which I thought was really, really beautiful and a great place. Sounds good to me, yeah. Um, and did you get to sample the Bordeaux in Bordeaux? No, I'm not much of a, a wine drinker, so I, I didn't really oh, take well, advantage. What a, what a waste. Okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's get to the chess. So how how did the – and I, I do want to talk about your coaching as well, but let's start with your playing. So um, how did you feel like you performed? So in general, I I think I did reasonable – um, I, I got a plus score in every tournament and, uh, my best result was probably in Romania in the small open where I, I tied for first with uh, seven and a half out of nine. Um, but that tournament, I basically played down every round. So it was more of a matter of like not getting Nick too many times and, and trying to, to pick up as many wins as possible. Um, in the in my first event, that was the the GM Norm Round Robin. Um, I think I lost my chances pretty early on, just a couple too many draws and a loss. Um, but that was my first tournament where I'm actually playing one of those um, round robins for a, a GM Norm. So that was kind of interesting to see, like the level of the playing field and and how I need to perform to actually score a like a twenty six hundred performance. Um, I would say my play definitely started to suffer by the third tournament. I would imagine due to, uh, just fatigue from playing so much, but I definitely felt it in, in Spain where I generally had a good tournament, but then I had like three draws against lower rated players from, uh, you know, much, much stronger position, like big, almost winning advantage. And so clearly felt like I ran out of steam and, and not being able to, uh, convert those positions. Um, then I was really worried about how I'd play at, at the final tournament in Montreal because the, the tournament's organized by um, my friend Lafong Hua, and he mainly organized the event to give some of the top Canadian juniors a chance to play against strong players and play in a serious event. So I knew going in that they would all be like preparing very seriously and it'd be really, really tough. And Canadian players are famously underrated because they have kind of a, a small circuit up there. And so everyone's playing against each other and their feed eight stays a little bit low. So I was really worried about just tanking and, and losing a ton of points there. Fortunately, I did. I did okay. I finished, I think, tied for second with uh, like five out of nine. Ended up dropping only a few points. But I felt like that tournament was more like damage control, like hmm. not getting upset too much. Yeah. A lot to follow up on from there. So one thing that that comes to mind is, so I've I've heard that about Canada, and I also hear China and India get mentioned as places where the players are underrated, without necessarily calling out a country. Is there are there places that you hear the people are overrated? Um, that's a good question. I feel like it's well, it's all kind of relative. So I would say nowadays, if someone is overrated, it just means that they're rated at like the appropriate rating. So it just means like you're, you're getting, uh, I guess like a fair win loss against them versus 
playing players that are underrated is, of course, can be frustrating if you're doing it over and over. Well, but for some people to be underrated, don't others have to be overrated? No, I think it's just a matter of them like not having like caught up with their actual strength. Okay, they just simply haven't played enough games. Yeah, uh, at least that's the case. I think for uh, Chinese and Indian players. Yeah, and you hear that even about scholastic American players, um, the the up and comers, because not not all events are FIDE rated. Um, but yeah, I was just curious. Um, so getting to to the events, do you feel like um, uh, do you feel like this gives you new respect for people who play and travel all the time, or did you already have um, that respect, or did you feel like this is you're you're saying that you may have run out of gas? Um, do you feel like uh, that was sort of a, a one-off thing and not something that would necessarily happen with with every trip with so much chess? Um, you know, I've definitely felt fatigued before because I've done a few of these trips where I play just multiple tournaments in a row. Uh, I think it's a very real thing. And yeah, I think it is one of the things I have to kind of work on um, if I want to like continue improving and, and taking my game to the next level. Because some of these GMs, they travel a lot and then they have to just, you know, put their maximum effort in every single game, like regardless of, of how tired they are. Cause it's, you know, it's how they make a living. Um, so yeah, I imagine it's very hard to achieve that, but I think it's important to work on, on that consistency and maybe just on, on physical fitness simply. Okay. I mean, you seem like you're in reasonable shape. I don't know. I guess when I travel, I do a lot of walking. But other than that, I wouldn't. <laughs> I wouldn't say anything. Okay, so not not doing the hardcore cardio or the ultra marathons or anything like that. Yeah, yeah, not so much. Yeah, and it does seem to be important um, for these long games, especially. Um, so you felt overall like your performance was okay. Was there a lesson that you felt like? Was there a particular aspect of your game that you came away feeling like you need to work on? Yeah, definitely the the technique, the converting of positions, you know, I think where you have like a pretty serious advantage at this point, it's like that should be as close to 100% as possible, um, especially against like lower rated players. So I think that was kind of, to me, that seems like the main thing I would have to work on at this point. So how how will you do that? Um, mainly through, through reading. I, I try to do uh, a lot of reading when I'm kind of studying and working on, on my own chess. Um, I'm, I haven't picked out, let's say, I don't know the right book, but there are a lot of books on like technical chess or, um, even just studying the games of, uh, someone like Carpa, for example, right. might do me wonders. Yeah. Or, or Carlson for that matter. Yeah, Carlson, absolutely. So you mentioned that you need to work on your technique, Kostya. Uh, is that something that you had an inkling of even before this, or did this trip really just drive it home? Yeah, I think I I could definitely pick this out before the trip as like my number one concern. So the all the games from the trip, they basically kind of like confirmed that conclusion. Um, but it was still a great experience, and I always feel like I learned a lot um, not just from playing, but, you know, you always do like two, three hours of prep before the game. And, and I feel like you learn a lot there. And then I was doing these game analysis videos. 
uh, from each trip. Uh, a bunch of them with Eric Rosen uh, were put on on his YouTube channel, then my YouTube channel. Uh, but basically, I this is something I started doing a couple years ago, just doing the the video analysis because I felt like number one, it would just force me to analyze the game in detail right away. So I would try to gain as much as I could from it. Um, and then putting it online is kind of like the old, um, but Vinick method where, you know, you have to publish your analysis so people can, can critique it. So you can't just, uh, superficially analyze the game without really going into detail if you're going to publish it for everyone to see. Um, so yeah, I, I feel like apart from what I learned just by like studying the openings before the game, um, I think there was a number of just like really, really interesting positions where I like misplayed it in some way. And, and it's just like a clear indication that, you know, I wasn't evaluating certain positions correctly. Well, good information to have, even if you don't always get it like the way you want it. Um, I mean, yeah. I've, um, and for listeners who haven't seen uh, Kostya and Eric Rosen's videos this summer, all of Kostya's recap videos are great. I've been watching them since he started doing them. He's also done them in the past with uh, Isaac Steinkamp when they were in Iceland together. And um, Eugene Perlstein, Grandmaster Perlstein, uh, hopped in on a couple of them. And I, I per- I'm very partial to the, the longer YouTube recaps because I just feel like I enjoy the little 10 and 15 minute quick hitters of a game. But basically, you're just going to learn a tactic or two. But to really see a stronger player take their time and go through their thought process to me is like a, a great way to learn and one that wouldn't have been available before the, the digital era. So thanks for taking the time to make them. I know that the, they're quite time consuming to do. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I appreciate that. I think the Deeper analysis, if yeah, if someone has the patience for it, it can be really uh, interesting to follow. Uh, and we do try to explain as much of the, the thought process as we can because we know that's what people kind of um, find most interesting. Yeah, and it's warts and, and all. I mean, of course, you're much stronger than me, but you still, like, you'll have things that you miss, and I can benefit from seeing things that, like, you or Eric Rosen or Eugene or whoever missed because um, I'm missing even more. So to see, like, yeah. that no matter where you are, these are the struggles you deal with is, is quite helpful. Although, Kostya, I do have to admit, so I, I had seen every one of your videos up until this summer, but you played so you played so much chess that you finally uh, outpaced me. So I'm... Uh, <laughs> I made it up to like uh, somewhere in Benask, but <laughs> but I, I've got some catching up to do. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> but I, I really do enjoy them. It's just, as I said, I mean, all the time it takes him to make them. Um, and they're, they're 45, 50 minutes a pop. And like both he and if he has another player in the video, which he usually does, going over their games, um, 25, 30 minutes of analysis. So it, it's a great way to really immerse yourself and pick up some opening tips and, and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, honestly, the hard part is usually just the like the rendering of the video and the uploading, because sometimes we're in a place that where the Wi-Fi is real spotty. Uh, like in Spain, it would take multiple hours to upload the video to YouTube. And that was usually the big uh, the big time consumer. Right. Yeah. And can you like I mean, I, I upload these interviews to YouTube, so I have a little bit of experience with it, but the Internet's OK here. And even then, it takes longer than other stuff. But can you upload it and like you know leave where you're staying and go do stuff or do you feel like you kind of need to stick around for that um that's usually what i would end up doing but 
then the Wi-Fi would cut out and, and the upload would either fail or, or slow down. Yeah. Yeah, I was afraid so, that something like that would be the answer. Right. So it was like a lot of babying the laptop. <laughs> right. But yeah. okay, we looked around it. We just took it to places with decent Wi-Fi. Yeah, that's a pain though. Um, and what's going on? Like, so you're a very busy chess professional, as we mentioned in, um, previously. You you have many roles, um, but you're you've been vocal in the past about you know you worked hard, as we talked about in your first interview, to to get the IM title, and you had just uh, gotten your last norm. When we talked, and you've been talked in the past about wanting to get a GM norm. So, are you still finding time to, with all the teaching that you do, work hard on your own chess? Um, I think it kind of it comes in cycles. Like if I have um, some events coming up, then I'll definitely dedicate a lot of time in, in the weeks before uh, to either like refresh my openings or do some calculation work, something kind of like really challenging. Um, during the main part of the year, I'm usually just focused on on teaching and I, I don't do a whole lot of training on my own. Um, but one thing that I, I try to incorporate is I, when I teach, I do try to use like new material as often as I can so that it just kind of stays interesting for me and that I'm also just like learning a lot while I'm preparing lessons for, for my students, many of whom are, you know, not that strong, but can be up to like 16, 1800. So they're at the level where they can be, you know, seeing some, you know, really interesting chess games that are also uh, pretty interesting for me to see as well. So I do feel like I get to work a little bit during the year. And then ramping up, I try to do more and more. Okay. And do you find the new source material just from keeping your, your database updated or reading online periodicals? Or what's like, how do you find this material? Um, well, a lot of times it's it's just taken from like the, the latest games. You know, Chess24 will always publish like the funny blunders and, and nice tactics. Um, I mean, that's an easy way to, to get new material, but that's usually not not super deep is just kind of like one, one funny idea. Um, so I, I like to work a lot with books. I think books just have probably everything, you know, a player needs at this point to get to any level they want. Um, so I'm, I'm a big believer in just like having my students read books and then working with them and, and just having them absorb, you know, as much material as possible. And do you give your students homework? Um, yeah. Yeah, as much as, as they can handle, it's usually like I want them to kind of want to do it themselves. So I never believe in like forcing them to do anything. So we always just kind of negotiate and figure out like, you know, what's doable for them, given that they have tons of schoolwork and, and other, uh, you know, extracurricular activities as well. Gotcha. Um, and do you, do you, I mean, uh, of course, you know, we're going to talk, we were, I was going to ask you about chess books anyway, so I might as well ask you now, um, do you have any yeah. books that you find yourself uh, recommending over and over again to your students? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I have always been a fan of books that incorporate um, some culture, some history, or like even stories. Um, so for that reason, I've always really enjoyed the, the Kasparov books, My Great Predecessors. I think those were, I mean just some of the best books out there. Um, I also like other books. Uh, for example, um, this one book is called from London to Elista. I don't know if you've heard of it by, uh, Yevgeny Bereyev. Yes. It's a matchbook, right? 
Yeah, it's basically following the three of Kramnik's world championship matches against Kasparov, uh, Leiko, and then and then Topalov. Um, and then it's written from the perspective of, of one of his seconds, and I thought it was just a super interesting book. I mean, the analysis of the games was really cool, but also just seeing, like, the reading the behind-the-scenes info I thought was, was really fascinating. Yeah, um, that stuff is, that's, like, right up my alley as well. Yeah, and if, if anything, I mean, it just like motivates you to to work to work more on the game, which I think is you know really really useful in itself. And are your students? Is that a book that you mentioned? Uh, a lot of students in the sixteen hundred to eighteen hundred range. Is that like over their heads, or are they able to to follow a book like that? No, I usually recommend this for for higher level for players that are already, let's say, maybe like preparing for games. You know, have their own kind of like opening work. Uh, so for this level, I think it's probably uh, a little too um, too high level. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I would say for for lower rated players, there's one book I really like by uh, Johan Helstein called Mastering Chess Strategy. Yeah, favorite of uh, Greg Shahadi's, and I think a couple other people have mentioned it too. Um, yeah, um, it is really good. Yeah, I mean it's a total behemoth. I mean it's a very large book, but the amount of material and exercises in it is really, I mean, is really comprehensive. Cool. And, and speaking of coaching, so you mentioned that your favorite experience over the summer was coaching the youth team in Chile. So uh, what was it about that, that experience that, that made it so enjoyable? Yeah. So I've, um, you know, always been interested in, in working at some of these high level youth events. I really like doing opening work and opening preparation um, and, and working with like, you know, some of the best kids in the country is always interesting to see, you know, how they're playing and, and how they're kind of developing as chess players. Um, so this was my, my first time working with the, the U.S. team. Uh, I was basically invited by the U.S. delegation and head of delegation is uh, Avi Friedman, who's been doing this for, for quite a while. Um, and I was working with two coaches that have also been there for many years uh, IM's Armin Ambartumian and Andronik Medikosian. So I actually grew up um, with them because we were all in uh, Southern California together. So I've played Andronik, you know, like 10 or 15 times uh, when I was uh, like working my way up as a chess player. And in the past, I've even worked with Armin uh, as he doesn't play anymore, but he's just a very high level coach. Uh, And he helped me a lot with my chess. So it was really cool to work alongside them and now uh, prepare, you know, some of the the best kids in, in the nation. Yeah, it sounds great. If a, if a little intimidating with how good the kids were, so or how good the kids are. So, what age kids were you were you guys coaching? Um, so the the competition was was all ages eight through eighteen. Um, the way it worked out is that all six of my kids were on the younger side. So I had, uh, I think, one kid uh, under twelve four kids under 10 and uh, one kid under eight. And um, I ended up getting in my group, two of the kids ended up winning uh, silver medals, which was, was really great. Uh, they were definitely one of the, the highest rated players in their sections. And I think one of the strongest, but it's such a long event. I mean, nine rounds for the kids. I think many of them, if they haven't played an event like this before, it's, it's very grueling. Um, I mean, you really have to just like play your your best chess every single day and try to get 
uh, nicked as, as little as possible. Yeah, the uh, the high-level scholastic tournaments are sort of their own animal. I mean, I r- remember both as playing way back in the day and as a, a coach. Like, you, you see a lot of kids whose performance can be highly erratic. Yeah, absolutely. So it's good if uh, if the kids can sometimes playing to their level is uh, is an achievement, especially as you say, if you're one of the higher seeds. Um, so I know we've had some other guests who've done some youth, like high level youth coaching, like uh, GM Robert Hess comes to mind, and he talked a bit about what what his approach is at events like this. So how did you find yourself approaching getting these kids ready? Like, was it a lot of opening prep or more sort of mindset stuff? What do you think is most important uh, at a tournament like that? Yeah, that's um, that's a great question. So I think I talked a little bit about um, my philosophy on openings the, the first time we talked, where I basically suggested that your goal from the opening should always be to get a playable position where you just, you know what your like long-term strategic plan is, you know what your concrete short-term goals are, you're familiar with some of the tactics in the position, and you definitely understand what your opponent is trying to do and how you're supposed to try to, you know, make that less achievable for them. So I felt like that approach is really useful when you have limited time to prepare, which is definitely what happened at this event. I don't know how it's been like in other events, if they're stretched out a bit more, but this one was pretty compact. We had a couple like double round days um, and the morning rounds were pretty early. So maximum I would have like 30 minutes with a student, um, but it was usually more like 10 to 15. So, a lot of work was actually done uh, by the parents because they're all at this point familiar with how to look up opponents' games and, and figure out their openings um, and use chess base and, and download games and all that. So a lot of the, the work was done by them, just like compiling games, emailing them to me so I don't have to do that work for like each student. Um, and then it was a matter of just kind of like, you know, going into it, I, I did a quick lesson with them just so I could kind of learn what the repertoire is already then when we would look at the opponent's games we would just kind of figure out okay do we want to go for the normal stuff or try to prepare you know something new and um i basically just tried to get a feeling for each student like how comfortable they were to play a new position versus just play what they're already familiar with um if it was more on the latter side of the spectrum if they didn't really want to try new things then it was a matter of kind of like patching up potential holes in the repertoire making sure that you know, they're not vulnerable to, to prep somewhere. Uh, as far as the psychological side goes, I mean, I went with just uh, the basic notion that staying positive is good. And, I, you know, I just tried to, to pep them up a little bit, telling them that, you know, they're strong enough to, to beat whoever they're playing, that they can, you know, get a good good position from the opening and then and then take it from there. So I feel like overall their confidence level was was pretty good. But a lot of that, I mean, these players are pretty experienced at this point, so I don't think I had to help too much in this regard. Okay. Yeah, so primary emphasis on openings, it sounds like. Um, do you consider yourself, I mean, I having written a book on the Open Sicilian, uh, the Modernized Sicilian, and since I support your Patreon page, I know I, I have... I think I know the answer to this, but I should ask you anyway. Uh, do you consider openings to be like um, a, a strength of yours generally? Yeah, I think I I would say I'm pretty knowledgeable. You know, honestly, not so much on opening theory so much because I I would say I don't know a lot about you know many different openings, but rather 
um, opening structures and certain types of middle games and, and what's a good version of this and, and what's kind of like less appropriate. Um, so I, I feel like that makes me very flexible regardless of what openings are going to show up on the board, like E4 or D4. I, I have some, you know, some knowledge in playing like a lot of different kinds of positions. Which makes you, I'm guessing, a, uh, a good person to be coaching these kids. <laughs> yeah, exactly, because they, they have such wide-ranging uh, repertoires. And did you find that the kids were facing or giving a lot of surprises, or were was a lot of what you guys prepared coming up on the board? Um, there were definitely a few moments, I recall, where we did get a surprise, like the opponent is only playing one variation their whole life, and all of a sudden they're playing like completely different opening. Mm-hmm. So of course there's like nothing you can do there that that's going to happen. Um, usually I try to include somewhere in the pep talk that like if they play something different, they're not going to know it as well. So, you know, you'll have chances there as well. Um, but there are also a few times where the opponent kind of like waltzed into what they normally do or what we can kind of predict. And, and then I'm, I'm sure the, the student felt, felt very confident there. Yeah, it's uh, it's getting easier and easier to workshop openings in in private now with all the online stuff and computers and so on. So I'm glad some of it paid off, and I'm sure it cut both ways. You caught people off guard, and you you know your students also got caught off guard. Um, yeah. Do you so for all the weekend warriors listening, the um, the chess enthusiasts who play when they can, like. What advice do you generally give for them in terms of preparing for a player? Like people are always debating. Uh, how much to prepare versus how much to to try to stay fresh. So, in like a weekend Swiss, what what do you think is the best approach? Um, so, yeah, usually you're going to have really limited time, especially for like the second round of the day. If you finish late, you have to eat, and then you know the pairings are always posted late, anyways. But like maximum, you know, you're going to have like fifteen to thirty minutes um, with the pairing. Um, I would say, like, I, I usually actually would opt for the side of, like, resting more in, in an open tournament because there's very little preparation someone can do in, in that amount of time anyway. So if your openings going into the event are solid, you know, max what you should do, I would say, is maybe check one of your previous games to make sure that no one can can repeat it and, and catch you if, if you're in trouble in round one. Um but yeah, I, th- I would. I usually tell players just to rest up for the game because the repertoire is good enough. They should be able to handle you know whatever is thrown at them in like this five ten minutes of, of preparation. Yeah, I, I I agree with you. I think it's good advice. I mean, I think everyone has the temptation to sort of it's like cramming for a test, but but right. I think it's just as likely to be counterproductive. Um, yeah. Okay. Another a question. Uh, excuse me. Chess improvement question from supporter of the podcast, Chris Wainscott. So Chris asks, when you're analyzing one of your games, is there a particular way you go about it? For example, do you start at move one and go to the end or analyze the critical moments first, etc.? Also, how much time should be devoted to analyzing a normal game? Say, for example, a 40 move game without a ton of complications or blunders. So how much time? Sorry. How much time should you spend on a game? I feel like my cadence made that question confusing. <laughs> sure, sure. Um, so time-wise, I would say, like, you know, during a tournament, if, if you have limited time, then you should just check the opening and make sure you have some improvement there. 
um, after the event, I, I think if it was a serious game, you should um, you should spend quite a considerable amount of time. Um, it probably takes me on average like three, four hours per game uh, because I also, in addition to kind of like trying to analyze it deeply and trying to figure out like um, where I miscalculated and what variations I, I misjudged, you know, I also take the time now to, to annotate the games and that, that takes a lot of time as well. Um, in terms of how I analyze the game, I mean, a lot of times there might be one moment like at the end where you just want to know like, okay, was there a win or not? Or was there a draw? Um, other than that, I, I basically just kind of start from the beginning and just start working through like the different lines I considered and, and what I thought might happen. And, and if I thought that was good for me, was that actually good for me? Or, you know, would, would they have some, some defense? Um, actually one, one game I didn't mention, but I, I had a game in Hungary where I, uh, agreed to a draw in the final position. It was, a uh, king and pawn end game where we both have two connected pass pawns. So to me, it felt like just the immediate draw. So I accepted a draw only to find out that the position uh, was winning. Huh. Um, and <laughs> the way I found that out was kind of funny. I just finished playing with my, uh, opponent. It was like a 16 year old kid. We went outside to analyze and then his parents walked in and then just basically told us like, Oh yeah, you are winning <laughs> in the middle position. Uh, so I had no idea. I assumed the game was, was dead drawn at that point. Um, but that was another moment where I felt like, yeah, maybe a grandmaster would have taken an extra two minutes just to double check that the position was drawn. Cause, uh, I think finding the winning line there was, was pretty doable for me. That's interesting. I'd like to see that position. Uh, yeah, yeah. If anyone's curious, it was uh, my game with Black against uh, Dominic Horvath. Okay. Uh, I think it likely went into the database, uh, but if not, I can I can send you a link and you can post it up. Okay, yeah. I'll try to track it down. That, that would definitely be interesting to see. And you mentioned, um, so in, in a critical moment where you want to know if it's a win or a draw and you might skip right to that. Um, of course, I have to ask you if if you look with an engine after the game, or if you just go to the position and you know try to to find your way through it on your own. I actually sometimes I do a mix of both. Like I feel like if um if I have a really good position strategically and I kind of like let it slip and I misplay it, then I try to kind of work it out myself just to see if I can find it later, and I'll even think about it like you know, blindfold during dinner or something, kind of the, the typical case. Um, and then I feel like if I can figure out the solution, then it, it, it kind of feels nice. It's like, okay, I kind of worked it out myself. And then I'll check with the engine to kind of confirm or, or see if, you know, I missed something. Um, but then there are a lot of cases where it's like you're at the board and you're, you're just like calculating very intensely and like you know there's a solution or you know there's something to be found. Um, and then you kind of just want to know because you figure like, okay, you already put in your maximum effort here. You didn't figure it out. So now let's just like check the engine and, and see what it says. And that's just to like save yourself the time uh, suffering over it. Okay. Yeah. So you're you're willing to do either one depending on the circumstance. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I've I've talked about this with other guests, but that makes me feel a little better because I certainly know the feeling of the latter, where you just you just have to know. Um, and you know, usually my instincts are are right. If you, if you feel like you missed something, you probably missed it. Um, yeah, absolutely. Okay. And and for listeners, um, 
interested in in seeing Kostya's analysis. I've mentioned his Patreon page a couple times. So he goes in incredible analysis on his games and um you know shares all of his opening prep and really uh posts videos. Um so um I I recommend you check it out. It's a, it's a cost-effective way to to improve your own chess and and get a glimpse at, at how a stronger player approaches things. Um and you you had a post recently uh involving chess computers. Um so mm-hmm. I, I had mentioned that I wanted to ask you about this. So why don't you tell us a little bit about this this interesting post and subsequent or related video that you did? Yeah, absolutely. Um, basically, for for my Patreon, it's it's kind of just like taking what I do in the real world and then trying to share uh, some of it online. So um, when I'm playing in tournaments, then I'm obviously going to be analyzing my games a lot. I like to share that and. When I'm at home, I'm doing more like studying and research. So I might like put up more like interesting positions that I'm looking at. Um, but for this one, it basically happened during um, the analysis of, of one of my games uh, from Spain. I was uh, analyzing the position with uh, Stockfish. And it was one of those Kings Indian positions where stockfish tends to give just a really huge advantage for white, like plus 1.3, 1.4. And uh, I think it's mainly because it's like a close center and has a big space advantage. So the, the evaluation just like goes way up. Um, and it can be frustrating to work with because you don't really know if that's the actual evaluation of the position, like or if, or if white is just like slightly better and the engine, the engine's overvaluating it. Um, so I turned to Komodo to see how it's going to evaluate the position because they typically have a different evaluation. Uh, and Komodo was saying like plus 0.3, plus 0.4. So like a huge difference in, val- in evaluation, like plus one. So I, I felt like, okay, clearly when this happens, usually one of the engines is kind of like missing something or like really is overvaluating or under-evaluating something. Um, and so I just started like doing some analysis and like, just like pitting the engines against each other. Um, I use my laptop as a second computer and I would run the engines on the different engines on different computers and, and see how they, they spar against each other. Um, and yeah, eventually I found out that Stockfish was kind of more correct in that position. Why had a lot of like dynamic chances that Komodo was missing. Um, so I just felt like that whole exchange was so fascinating that I recorded a video kind of showing the analysis and, and put it up. Yeah, it was super interesting to me. I mean, uh, your your knowledge of chess computers was clearly uh, deeper than mine. And so one, one thing I was wondering based on the video is how big a difference does the processing speed of the computer make, in your opinion, both from this little experiment that you did and your, your general experience working with, with computers? Um. I think it's it's pretty important just from a like mathematical standpoint. Um, so for for listeners, the background is that my desktop computer is probably three three and a half times stronger than the laptop. So usually, In terms I mean of processing speed. Yeah. So it, for me, in, in practical terms, usually means that like if I analyze anything on my laptop versus the desktop, I, I know to kind of, I should run it like at least three times longer than I would normally, just so I can get kind of an accurate, you know, estimate of, of whatever I'm looking at. Um, but I, I think the the power of the engines, of course, 
has increased dramatically. So I remember seeing some article on chess.com that um, it basically had Komodo playing like on a smartphone against uh, an older engine playing on a much more powerful CPU and Komodo was just like killing it. Hmm. So, so I think in, in terms of playing strength, I, I think the engines have, for, at least from what I understand, increased dramatically. Uh, you know, maybe just knowing what lines to prune, just how in, knowing how to evaluate positions a little bit better. Um, you know, whatever they've done, they've, they've done a great job. And have you ever come across this before, like uh, such a disparity between um, two engines when analyzing your games? You know, I usually don't uh, take the time to, to use or to consult two engines. I usually just stick with Stockfish. Um, in the past, I used Houdini, which I really liked. Um, but, yeah, sometimes if if the evaluation is really confusing to you, it, it just makes sense to, like, get a second opinion, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And what about, um, I know in our first interview, you mentioned you'd worked with Varakopian, among other coaches. Do you do you still work with coaches in, in your own quest to improve? Um, I worked a little bit. So when I was um, training hard to get that final IM norm, I, I spent a lot of time working with uh, with Alshan, Moradi Abadi. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, and, and that basically just happened very very naturally we had just become friends a few months earlier and then we, we played once and then it, you know it was kind of like a natural partnership for for him to to start uh coaching me a little bit um he had specifically wanted to to work with with stronger players so it was kind of a, a good fit um and uh other than that I, I kind of slowed down just because i i felt like there's so much I could be working on just from books and, and so much I haven't done yet that it, it doesn't make sense to, um, to spend time and money with a coach if I'm not kind of like doing the things on my own already. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I slowed down in that sense, but uh, I have continued, uh, you know, training and, and, and sparring with, with other players and such. Yeah. You've got a, a pretty good network in the chess world. Um, do you have like a, like if you had all the time in the world to study chess, like the all every every competitive chess player's dream, uh, yeah. like what would you do? Say say you someone just say you got the Sanford tomorrow, right? <laughs> uh, what would you, what would you do over the next year? What would your plan be? I think it would be pretty simple. So I would first just read my great predecessors from cover to cover, just to get the full picture of like chess history and chess culture and, and all the best games that, you know, were played by the, the previous champions. And sorry to cut you off, but have, have you read it in the past? I've, I've just read certain sections of it. So I read the, the part on, on Fisher and, and Ryshevsky and some of the, the previous chapters kind of just like, you know, whichever players I was most interested in. Um, so I think I read about Alakine and, uh, a few other guys. Okay. Um, other than that, I would, I would probably just get all of Agard's books in the GM preparation series and just solve every problem in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that um, that would keep you busy for sure. Actually, as a as another book recommendation, I you know really enjoyed the Excelling at Chess series, which is kind of a, a prelude to the the GM prep series. Uh, especially just the first book, Excelling at Chess, which was just written about 
kind of more general, like how to approach the game uh, type stuff, which I thought was a very, very interesting read. Okay. Um, and the more recent one, I guess the, the follow-up to that, Thinking Inside the Box, mm-hmm. uh, I read right before the trip, actually. And, and I thought this was uh, just a very, very nice, like practical guide. It's like everything a player needs to do to, uh, to hit the next level. Cool. And is that, I mean, uh, those books are, Agard's books are, are very commonly recommended. Everyone raves about them. Do you think that they're good for players of, of all levels or more oriented just for stronger players? Um, well, I think the different books have been written for the different levels. I would say the Excelling at Chess series is kind of like the starter one. So I, I recommend a lot of these books to, to students that are like 15, 1600. Okay. Um, because like the the calculation book, for example, like goes into and it like explains the the mechanics of calculation and a lot of the different uh, techniques like uh, comparison and and uh, method of elimination and all that stuff that's like very um, like fundamental. Okay, so yeah, I'll I'll put all these books up on the web page where it lists all the book recommendations. Um, um so. Moving on to another topic, Kostya. Um, I've quoted you on the podcast at least once talking about how much you learned and benefited from uh, Peter Lacoe's uh, announcing. But for since we have you here, I feel like we might as well hear it straight from the source. So you re- you wrote a really insightful post on Patreon about it on your Patreon page. Um, what was it about his analysis that you you found so interesting? And, and well, let's start with that. Yeah. Well, so I've always. Um enjoyed watching commentary and and when i was like 17 1800 this is one of the things i was doing um hours of at a time trying to to get better uh starting with with icc and then when st louis started their broadcast i was definitely watching that uh, a lot of the time uh so i've always really liked chess commentary and i felt like it's a great way to improve just your general knowledge of the game and, and learning about different kinds of positions um specifically about Peter Laco, recently he was doing commentary at the uh, the Granky Super Tournaments this year and I think the previous year, uh, usually working with either Jan Gustafsson or I think Lawrence Trent did a few of them. Um, and his commentary was specifically very good because he's played against all of the, the top players and, and he has like these really, really interesting insights that he's very willing to share. So he's played against... Um, Aronian, Carlson, Caruana, Vichy, basically, you know, everyone on the top circuit, Kramnik, obviously. And, um, and somehow when he's doing commentary, he's very good at like predicting their motives and just like analyzing their motives for, for this move. Cause he's also a very active player or at least I don't, I'm not sure how actively he plays, but he's actively studying openings. So he's looking at all the same, Berlin's and Italian games that everyone else is looking at. And a lot of times he's very willing to share his own insights and a lot of the opening discoveries he's made and contributions he's done. Uh, so in general is he's like a super player that's being extremely open with, uh, his like private, like preparation work and, and his analysis. And it's, uh, especially interesting to see him analyze with Jan because they, uh, they've worked together before Jan was, was working at as Peter's second and um, so they clearly have a lot of experience, like analyzing different uh, positions together. And it really shows like usually I, I find the, the middle game analysis part uh, somewhat uninteresting because a lot of times it's the commentators 
um, either relying on engines and just giving the engine lines or they're kind of like they're just trying to demonstrate cute or interesting lines without really getting into the the crux of the position. So I never found that part super, super interesting, at least not from a chess improvement point of view. Um, but when Leiko's analyzing, it's it's like a completely different picture. He's like really trying to get to like the truth of the position. And um, what's specifically useful for me is just seeing his intuition when he's analyzing different positions, um, specifically knowing like what kind of moves to calculate because uh, obviously they want to get to the answer very quickly for the viewers. And so if they start working, analyzing some line and it's not working, they'll, they'll think, okay, well, let's, let's, look at, let's look at something else. Let's try this move. Um, and for me specifically, the way um, he approaches the technical side of the game, I think, is really, really remarkable. Like a lot of times he was just finding very clean solutions for converting, you know, advantages that for me were, were pretty instructive. Huh. Yeah. And and you mentioned you were, so you were not necessarily catching this live, but you were going back and watching it later, right? Yeah. I mean, chess 24, I, I don't know if they still have them up, but they, they put the entire commentary on YouTube. So it's completely free. And I, I think it's yeah incredibly useful. Yeah. And I, and you mentioned, I mean, Peter Leco, obviously he still plays competitively, competitively, but he's also coaching this young German wonderkind, Vincent Kmar. So um, he right. he's obviously uh, still 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 knows a lot about the chess world and, and an incredible resource. Um, so um, I, I I echo your sentiment that that people should check it out. Um, do you have other favorite announcers? Yeah, I um, do speak and understand uh, Russian. So I was recently listening to the Swidler and uh, Miroshnichenko commentary in St. Louis covering the St. Louis Rapid and Blitz, and I imagine they're, they're doing the Sinkville Cup as well. Um, but uh, specifically, I really, really like Grandmaster uh, Sergei Shipov as a, as a Russian commentator. Um, he's often working on his own, but I feel like his commentary is so fast and, and so on point that he's just as good as, as anyone else doing it. Uh, I think he's he's always been known to be a really good blitz player, so his speed of analysis is very, very, uh, very good. And uh, he's also a well-known Russian coach. Like, he's worked with a lot of the, the top Russian players. So a lot of these guys, he knows, like, kind of personal info about them and their playing style, and, you know, he's just very, very familiar with all the players. So uh, I really enjoy his work. Wow. Uh, makes me – I did take Russian in college, but if – I wouldn't be able to keep up, unfortunately. But yeah, me, same. Yeah. Um, so are you more inclined to watch English coverage or Russian coverage? Um, yeah, it probably depends on, on who's doing it. If it's uh, your average super tournament, um, I would I would probably go with Shipov because I feel like he's uh, just, I don't know, I think he brings like the most the most value in terms of like the Russian culture and the Soviet chess school and all that. Um, but I... Definitely enjoy, you know, Jan and Peter when they're on Chess 24 as well. I think they, you know, they do really good stuff as well. Yeah, they're, they're quite entertaining and uh, obviously know their chess. Um, so it's interesting, generally, your perspective on watching broadcasting because we've had other strong players on who, who always say, like, they'll check the positions, but they never have the sound on when they're watching. Um, so, I mean, it's a, it's impressive to me that 
even up to the 2400 feet a level you're you're really benefiting from um from staying focused and watching i mean i guess as I, as we've talked about with other guests a lot of it comes down to like how much you're paying attention when you're watching yeah absolutely i mean for me it also it's definitely used as a tool for procrastination if there's a big <laughs> event going yeah um but no I, I do feel like i i get some some real benefit out of it that's great yeah because it is entertaining as well as you mentioned so have you been uh watching i mean we won't be too out of date since we're recording friday and this this comes out tuesday have you been following the sinkfield cup much um i i have i've mainly just been checking the games but because it's like i'm back into a full full work day i don't have time to just watch the the whole coverage um but i was watching the the same most rapid and blitz and I'm definitely planning a Patreon post for some of the the most intri- interesting games from there because uh, I, I I watched the whole thing and I thought it was like I mean some of the the turnarounds and the swindles were were really fascinating. Cool, I'll, I'll look forward to that. What what's your general take on rapid versus classical? Like, um, obviously we've had this again. I had this conversation with a lot of guests, but do you? Uh, um, do you favor one over the other in terms of like what you like to watch? Yeah, I definitely prefer watching uh, rapid events mainly because there's, you know, more action and less time. Um, but also just from like a theoretical standpoint, you know, you get to see more games and more openings and it is very interesting to see um, how the players manage their repertoires during the events. Like you have someone like MBL who just plays the same thing every single game and, and people will test him. Um, and then you had other players who are kind of um, bouncing around a little bit more, trying to, you know, just play different things. Um, especially like Mama Jar with white was playing like night of three E three every game and not really going for any, uh, any of the main lines. Yeah. I sort of feel like openings with white are, are, are trending in that direction. I don't know if you mm-hmm. caught caught MVL's quote that he he's going to keep playing the night orf unless the doctor tells him to stop. But uh, I enjoyed that. <laughs> no, I think I think it's been it's been working for him, and it's like at this point, it definitely feels like a point of pride for him to just keep playing the exact same lines. Yeah, yeah, and it makes the games more interesting for sure for the fans. So I I hope he can uh, can can keep it up. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay. So you mentioned you're already busy. So like, what work are you doing? Cause for me, I'm, this is like one of my slowest work weeks because, uh, the camps are done, but the school year hasn't started. So all the after school programs I haven't, uh, I'm doing won't kick into gear for a few weeks. So wh- what's keeping you busy this week, Kostya? Um, so one of the things I'm working on is just, uh, writing a couple articles about the, the trip for, for us chess. So those will probably be going up sometime soon. Um, I'm also working on some new courses for uh, Chess University that I've done a, a lot of work for in the past. Um, and yeah, now I have a bunch of private students as well that are planning their next tournament. So I'm trying to, um, whenever I have a long break with my students, when we get back into it, I try to you know construct some kind of new training plan or training regimen for them so that they can stay motivated going into the the school year good for you very very dedicated teacher (laughs) yeah absolutely 
And you do group group classes for Bay Area chess. Are those uh, on? Are those do those? Excuse me. Do those coincide with the school year, or do they go year round, or what? Um, yeah, they're typically year round, and in the summer, um, we might have one per month instead of uh, the usual three. Um, but these are the the team classes at Bay Area Chess. Um, well, I think you had uh, you had Judith uh, talking about them in the yeah. past. Um, so you, you probably know a little bit about them, but basically I, I coach one of the groups now their rating levels about, uh, 1400 to 1800, um, which is a really, I think a really cool bracket to teach because this is right where, you know, this is the time where they learn that like you can sacrifice a pawn without, uh, knowing exactly the concrete, you know, way you're going to get it back, but rather just for, for compensation, um, and they get to learn about interesting aspects of, you know, attack and defense and, and different openings and all that. Um, and so I basically work with them until they can improve and, and advance to the elite team, which is 1800 plus. Uh, and then they get to work with, uh, coach Daniel Naroditsky, who is really, really, uh, a great coach. Like he's, he prepares some excellent material and he's very tough on them. So he really makes them work a lot. So it's kind of my job to to prepare them for him. Hmm. Is it like a good cop, bad cop thing, or I guess? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, basically, I'm just trying to get their like calculation up to snuff so that they're not uh, not embarrassing themselves too much. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm sure you're able to, you're able to do that for the. Uh... The 1,400 to 1,800 students. And do you have like in, in that rating range, do you has, is there a common mistake you see or is there like one thread that you see that the students really need to work on? Yeah, I would say um, I think I, I picked this idea up from, from one of Agard's books, but it's usually just not really looking for enough options um, because so many times, you know, you can put a problem on the board that's like, maybe a three or four move combination. And then they can see, or they can intuitively figure out the first two moves. But then on move three, they're not doing like the typical tactics check and looking for that quick main in two or main in three. And so they, they end up missing a lot of these resources on, on move two or three of the, the variation. So a lot of times with calculation work is just like showing them, like look at how many different options there are in the position. Because uh, once they start like visualizing something, it's a lot harder, of course, to look at you know more variations. So it's just like a constant, like it's just like a consistent training. Like, okay, here's like a bunch of positions. Try to calculate like very accurately, and and of course, you know, finding the uh, opponent's uh, best defense is always a, a real struggle. <laughs> um, you have to just remind them, like you know, put yourself in your opponent's shoes. Like after the sacrifice, like. You know, you have some Canada moves here. You can react a number of different ways. So just trying to get them to be a little bit more uh, broader in their search when their calculation, I think, is the the big one. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, and definitely you can get tunnel vision the further down a variation you go. Um, yeah. Uh, okay. Well, Kostya, I think we've covered most uh, most of the things I had on my list. Um, what? So what's next for your chess? Do you have any, any tournaments you're going to manage to play in over the coming months? Um, so right now I'm only planning one tournament for now at the very beginning of next year. They're going to restart the, the Bay Area International. So this is a tournament run by uh, Arun Sharma a few years back, and now uh, Bay Area Chess, I think, is, is helping him with it. 
Um, so that'll be a really strong event just right at the beginning of, of 2019. Cool. Yeah. Um, I think Judith mentioned that one as well. Um, oh, great. Yeah. So that's a long way in the planning. Yeah. Other than that, I, I don't have uh, too many events planned. I'm likely going to be coaching again at the World Cadet uh, in November, and that'll be in Spain. So I'm pretty excited about that. Um, and that's, yeah, that's basically everything that's that's concrete for me. Other than that, just probably more courses, more videos, and uh, hopefully more more reading and training as well. Yeah, I've got to make time for that. Yeah. Yeah, because we, we want you to get that title. We want you to get the GM <laughs> title, Costio. Yeah, absolutely. Um, cool. And otherwise, life is good. I mean, I know when we had you on the first time, you talked a little about how you know, you you weighed some other options like, you know, pursuing improv or whatever, like working in the in the the real rat race and, you know, <laughs> love chess so much that you decided to to work as a professional. Are you still happy with that decision? It seems like things are going well for you. Yeah, for the moment, there's yeah, definitely um, tons of work coming in. So I would say being a chess player is really, really nice lifestyle get to make my own schedule and, and plan my own trips. And, and when I do travel for tournaments, obviously everyone I, I sort of work for understands cause they're all in the, the chess community. Um, so yeah, no, no regrets so far. Um, you know, I always worry like what's going to happen in, in 20 and 40 years of chess will, will still be around, but I mean, it survived this far. So I guess, I guess things are looking good. Yeah, yeah, it's it's amazing, you know, fifteen hundred years and counting, still kicking. So, yeah, I <laughs> right. mean, the the overall popularity ebbs and flows, but uh, it, it seems to never disappear, despite uh, proclamations that it might. Okay, yeah. well, that's that's a good yeah. night. I think that's um, that's a a good note to to end on. I think a lot of uh, our listeners already know how to find you online, but in case they don't, uh, let's let's give them the list. Yeah, basically all my online handles are at HelloCostia. Uh, so the easiest way to, to find me is on Twitter. Uh, or you can go to my site, which is simply HelloCostia.com. And if you Google Fide and Kostya, even though your name on Fide is listed as uh, Konstantin Kovutsky, you still come up first as if you type in Fide and Kostya. So, so you've got that going for you as well. Oh, good, good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, you can find his chess.com profile. He's on Twitter, Facebook, Chess University. Um, check out his Patreon page, his YouTube page. Not not hard to track down. And Kostya is a, a great communicator of chess ideas. So for those of you listening looking to get better, um, I definitely recommend you, um, you check out his material. Cool. Thank you so much, Ben. Cool. Good to catch up with you. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll, we'll be in touch. All right. Take care. Thanks for listening to Perpetual Chess. If you like the show, shout it from the hilltops. Tell your friends. Write positive reviews on Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform. If you don't like the show, just keep it to yourself. I want to give special thanks to Geert Vandervelt for making the intro music. And of course, I have to thank my Patreon and PayPal Perpetual partners, without whom the show would not be possible. They are Adam Ralph, Adam Vrancourge, Adrian Gutierrez, Andres Krizdwa, Alex Pejas, Brian Mullis, Carl Labans, Chris Wainscott, Chad Hilton, Christopher Wood, Coach J's Chess Academy, Chris Flanagan, I am Christoph Zalicki, Dan O'Hanlon, Daniel Ginsberg, Daniel Naylor, Daniel Schaefer, I am Alec Donnie Ariel, Frank Tortoris, Gary Andrews, Greg Shahadi, Harish Srinivasan, 
GM Jacob Agard, James Bonastia, Jennifer Valens, Jeffrey Martello, John Fernandez, John Hartman, John Jernigan, Jen Shahadi, Jens Green, Jerry Wells, John Thompson, Johnny McMenamin, WGM Katarina Nemkova, Kelly Palmer, Krishna Gopalakrishnan, Laura Belyavsky, Lorraine Dore, Matthew Passy, the producer of Perpetual Chess, Macaulay Peterson, Matthew Tedesco, Nathan Webster, GM Pascal Charbonneau, Paul Sweeney, Paulo Santana, Peter Lux, Peter Merrifield, Randall Temple, Ricky Grahava, Rob Lazorchek, Robert Steiner, WGM Tatyav Abrahamian, Thomas Stanix, Thomas Tachenko, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, Todd Bryant, Tony Rotella, Victor Vrankouj, FM Zhao Cheng, and Zhivko Stoyanov. Thanks again, everyone. I will be back soon with another interview. Sports Social Podcast Network.